Now please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. The Romans chapter 2. I'm going to read this morning verses 17 to 29, Romans 2, 17 to 29. Now, if you call yourself Jewish and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what's superior being taught from the law, and are convinced that you yourself are a guide for the blind and a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Therefore, you who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach not to steal, do you steal? You say not to commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you commit sacrilege? You who boast in the law, through your violation of the law, you dishonor God. For because of you, God's name is being defamed among the Gentiles, just as it's written. For on one hand, circumcision benefits if you observe the law. If on the other hand, you're a violator of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcised keeps the requirements of the law, won't his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And the uncircumcised by nature, if he fulfills the law, will judge you, the violator of the law with scripture and circumcision. For it isn't the Jew in what's visible or the circumcision in what's visible in flesh but the Jew in what's hidden, and circumcision of heart in spirit, not letter, whose commendation is not from men, but from God. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on the ministry of this word. Father, thank you for your holy word. We ask you, please, to draw near to us this morning and grant that the Holy Spirit will make this passage profitable, that it will bring glory to you, that it will do good to everyone who hears it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. People tend to worry about the future. They tend to be concerned about 
potential for suffering that's coming in this life, potential for living under a totalitarian government with oppression and depression and poverty. And true religion gives people hope. It gives hope of a better world for those who suffer in this life under tyranny or poverty. Now, what have you had to choose? If you had no choice but to take one of the two, which would you choose as better? If you had to live in this life without freedom, under tyranny and in poverty, and spend eternity in heaven, or if you got to live with prosperity and liberty in this world and spend eternity in hell, which, which is preferable? Now, when I posed that question to my wife, she said, neither. I choose neither of those two things. But then she had to reluctantly say, okay, if I had no choice, I would prefer to live under tyranny and in poverty and spend eternity in heaven rather than have liberty and prosperity and spend eternity in hell. Okay. So why are you bringing up something like that? I mean, what does that have to do with the text? Well, this is what struck me of how that question, which I hope, by the way, my wife is right, and I hope none of us ever have to make that choice. Okay. But the point is this. This is the point. What could possibly be more tragic because religion gives people living under tyranny and living in poverty hope of a better world. So what could be more tragic than to have people living under tyranny, living in poverty, and then have a false religion that gives them hope of a better world, which when they die, they wind up in hell. What's worse than that? So those that propagate false religion that gives people suffering in this life a false hope of a better world after death, they do more harm to thousands and millions of souls. They do more harm than a mass murderer. They give people living in terrible circumstances, hope that isn't a true hope, but a false hope of a better world after death. What could be more tragic, sad, and worse than that? The Apostle Paul is speaking in this passage about such a false hope. A religion that gives people a vain, empty, unprofitable hope of a better world after this life. There's nothing worse than that. Possibly 
That's why he uses such strong language in the book of Galatians. I, it's kind of an aside. I don't want to go down a rabbit trail, but he uses very strong language to condemn people that propagate that false hope in the world. And he tells people, and these were his own relatives, and he was once just like them. He tells people, and he once had that false hope, he tells people that are now presently living with the false hope that he once had, why they so desperately need the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to know a little bit about the apostles' background. And I just want to read you a little bit about it to understand what he's talking about. Why is he saying this to people? Is he anti-Semitic? Absolutely not. He, he doesn't hate Jewish people. He says in Romans 9 and in Romans 10, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience bearing witness with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. I could wish myself a curse from Christ for my brothers, my relatives according to the flesh who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He's not anti-Semitic. He doesn't hate Jewish people. He loves them. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own, they haven't submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. He loves them, and he prays for them, and he wants them to be saved, and he loves them so much that he can wish himself accursed himself if it would do them spiritual good. So this whole attempt to deliver people from false hope and vain religion doesn't grow out of hate. It doesn't grow out of anti-Semitism. It grows out of love and compassion and concern and prayer for his beloved relatives that are living in the same darkness that he once lived in himself. And God had mercy on him, and he wants God to have mercy on them too. And look how he puts it. In Philippians chapter 3, he describes it. He says in verse 4, Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any other person thinks that he has whereof that he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. 
But what things were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. He says, I used to live a life of outward decency and blamelessness. I was zealous. I was religious. I once lived like that. I once had the same false hope. I'm no better than they are, but God had mercy on me. And he says these things to his countrymen that he loves because he wants them to experience the same mercy, the same forgiveness, the same salvation that God showed him when he was living with that false hope. That's where he's coming from. He's not coming out of arrogance and pride and superiority and hate. But he's coming out of grace and love and mercy and faithfulness to the souls of people. That he wants to be saved because God saved him when he was in the same state they are in now. So that's the context. Does that make sense? He doesn't hate Jewish people. Exact opposite. And he addresses them. He addresses this empty religion in terms of three things. Privilege, hypocrisy, and presumption. He talks about their religious privileges, first of all, in verses 17 to 20. Then he reproves their moral hypocrisy in verse 21 to 24. And finally, he exposes or refutes presumption of false hope of eternal life. Privilege, hypocrisy, and presumption. And so that's what he deals with. He deals with privilege. He deals with hypocrisy, religious privilege, moral hypocrisy, and false hope. Now, first of all, look what he says about religious privilege. And the great religious privilege that his countrymen had, and that he also had before he was saved. He says, you rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what's superior, being taught from the law. They had the Old Testament scriptures. And in relation to God, they had the great privilege of being God's people under the Old Covenant of hearing and knowing special revelation in Scripture. They relied on the Scripture as their religious authority. They knew God's revealed will for human conduct in the Ten Commandments. And they knew that God had spoken this revealed will from heaven himself on Mount Sinai. They understood the priority of religious service, of the supernatural, and of the world to come. And they learned these things because they grew up under the teaching of the scriptures. And this was right. The vast majority of those who grew up knew those things and had the great privilege of hearing those things from the time they were little kids. And in relation to the rest of mankind, he speaks about that. 
In verse 19, you're convinced that you're a guide to the blind. They regarded themselves to be a spiritual guide and a moral teacher to the rest of the human race. And it wasn't sin for them to realize that they had this unique privilege in Scripture. So the problem was thinking that their religious privileges made them exempt from the wrath of God. Does that make sense? Religious privileges. And they thought because of those religious privileges that they were superior morally to other people. So ironically, their very religious privileges posed a barrier to their conversion. Because no one is so hard to heal as the guy that is convinced that he's healthy and has absolutely no need of a doctor or medicine. And so today, it is especially difficult to reach a name uh, and in name only, a nominal Christian, someone who's a Christian in name only, who was raised and grew up in the Christian church, always had a Bible, always heard about God, always knew about these things from the time a little boy or a little girl. And they figured that because they got the Bible on the shelf, and because they went to church, that everything is okay. That's what they think. They confuse their privileges with where they stand with God. We don't want to make that mistake. And here's the second thing that he mentions. Moral hypocrisy. You, therefore, verse 21, who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach not to steal, do you steal? You say not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You detest idols, do you commit sacrilege? He's talking about hypocrisy. Now, do you know what hypocrisy looks like when you see it? Can you recognize hypocrisy when you see hypocrisy? Right? We all recognize and see hypocrisy in our society, don't we? How do we see it? Well, let's take a couple of examples. Hypocrisy. Those who impose on others mask mandates that they themselves don't follow when they think that no one has a camera on them. Everybody knows that's hypocrisy, right? Or those who press on others that they ought to buy an electric car while they themselves drive gas guzzlers. What do you call that? You need to buy electric cars. What do you drive? Oh, well, I, you know, I drive a gas guzzler. You're a hypocrite then, aren't you? You need to wear a mask. But as long as I don't think the camera's on me, I don't have to wear one. 
Now, we all see this kind of stuff going on, but we're not blind to it. We recognize hypocrisy when we see it. So what is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is when you pressure and condemn others morally for things that you yourself do. That's hypocrisy. So Paul says, you who say people shouldn't steal, do you steal? You who say people shouldn't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You hate idolatry. Are, are you guilty of it? Now, why do you think, I mean, I, I have to ask myself, I shouldn't ask you, let me ask myself, why do I think that he picked these three things out? He just picked these things out of the air? And why did he put them in the order that he put them? Stealing, adultery, and idolatry. Why just, he's going to talk to his countrymen, people that were raised with the same religious privileges that he had. Why would he just pick out stealing, adultery, and idolatry and just pick those things out and ask those questions about those things? Well, I can't be dogmatic about it, but I have an idea. And I think that the principle is, and, and, and I think the order in which these things come and why he picked these three things, I, I, I think this is what he's doing. He's talking about his own conversion. And he's talking about what God used to save him. So what is it? Where is it? How is it that stealing and adultery and idolatry are all connected together. Is there any way that the scripture connects together stealing and adultery and idolatry? Romans 7, 7. It's what happened to him. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. No. But I didn't know sin except by the law because I didn't know what lust was. That is, inordinate inward desire. Sinful desire in the heart, unless the law said, you shall not covet. So what happened to him? He says, okay, here I was, an outwardly blameless Pharisee, and what was it that brought him under conviction of sin? You shall not covet. So here's a guy, outwardly decent, walking with outward decency. And the, and the law of God comes to him and says, you shall not covet. And his heart is opened and he realizes that he's filled with coveting. And now look what things are connected to the 10th commandment in Exodus 20. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. First, don't covet his house. Now that's connected to the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. He didn't steal his house. No, you coveted his house. You didn't actually steal it. You just coveted it in your heart. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That's connected to the seventh commandment. First the eighth, then the seventh. You shall not commit adultery. I didn't commit adultery with my neighbor's wife. No, you just coveted her in your heart. The eighth commandment, then the seventh commandment. 
You shall not covet. So I think what he's thinking about is he's thinking about what God used to save him when he was living an outwardly decent, moral life, and yet he was filled with sin in his heart. And he was filled with greed in his heart and with sexual lust in his heart. And he came under conviction of sin. And the other thing is, it, he himself says in Colossians 3.5, Put to death, therefore, your members that are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And he identifies covetousness with idolatry. Again, these are the three things that he mentions in this text. Stealing, adultery, and idolatry. And the scripture explicitly connects these things with coveting. You shall not covet your neighbor's property. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Covetousness is idolatry. You who say someone shouldn't steal, do you steal? You who say someone shouldn't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who say someone shouldn't commit adultery, Idolatry. You hate idols. Are you an idolater? Because if you're covetous, then you're an idolater. And if you're covetous of someone else's wife, then you're committing adultery. And if you're covetous of someone else's property, then you're committing theft. You're guilty of theft and idolatry and adultery in your heart. You don't have to do it outwardly. Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. And the reality of the tenth commandment broke in upon this Pharisee's soul. And he saw that his coveting was grievous, hell-deserving sin. And he came under conviction of sin. An outwardly decent man. And this is what he's pressing on their conscience. We should be careful to avoid the same kind of blindness. I'm not a thief. I mean, I'm not a looter or an armed robber. But greed in the heart makes someone as hell-deserving as a looter. I'm not an adulterer or a fornicator or promiscuous, but heart and eye lust make someone as hell-deserving as a promiscuous lifestyle. I don't worship false gods, but greed and lust in the heart makes someone as hell-deserving as those who are actively engaged in worshiping other gods. That's the point of the text. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, you say people shouldn't steal. Are you you greedy in your heart? You say people shouldn't commit adultery. You have lust for other women in your heart. You say uh, people shouldn't commit adultery. But by your coveting, you have other gods. Don't you realize that you're hell-deserving? You're preaching these things to others, but you yourself are blind to what you're doing and how you're living. 
You think you're morally superior to people because you're not outwardly looting and you're not outwardly murdering and you're not outwardly committing adultery. Okay, but inwardly you're full of greed and lust and hate. Don't you understand? That's how he was brought to conviction of sin. And he was using the same thing that brought him to conviction to try to show to his deluded relatives like he was once deluded that they also need Christ. He shows decent, outwardly moral, respectable sinners that if lust and greed reign in their heart, they're under the wrath of God in spite of their outward decency. And then that brings me to the final point this morning. So he addresses the issue of privilege. He addresses the issue of hypocrisy. And then finally, he addresses the issue of false hope. And he opens up two key ideas that he contrasts in these verses. He addresses the, he contrasts the idea of religious ritual with the idea of gospel holiness. Gospel holiness is a life of genuine religion that comes from a new and regenerated heart and walks in conscientious compliance with God's revealed will. Gospel holiness. Ceremonial ritual is taking part in religious ceremonies like circumcision or a religious feast in Jerusalem or a Passover meal or today a religious ceremony like being christened as an infant or taking communion or attending religious services on Christmas or Easter or getting, uh, getting involved in other religious rituals. He talks about religious rituals versus a lifestyle of gospel obedience to God that grows out of a new and regenerated heart. And observe what he says about these things. First of all, he says, look, a ceremonial ritual is beneficial if and only if it's joined to gospel holiness. Verse 25. For on the one hand, circumcision benefits if, and only if, you observe the law. A religious ritual is not profitable to you. It's not a benefit to you if you're not living a life of gospel holiness that grows out of a regenerate heart. Second point that he makes. Not only is it beneficial if and only if it's coupled with gospel holiness, it's useless without gospel holiness. He says that in the second part of verse 25. If, on the other hand, you're a violator of the law, your religious ritual has become no ritual. Your circumcision has become uncircumcision. It's useless. 
It's profitless. It's vain. If you sever it and rip it from a gospel holiness that grows out of a regenerate life. Your ritual's no good on its own. It's absolutely worthless in terms of your eternal state. Thirdly, and the reason for these things is that gospel holiness is the evidence of true religion, whether or not it's coupled to any ceremonial ritual. Therefore, verse 26, if the uncircumcised keeps the requirements of the law, if a person who's never been through any religious rituals walks in gospel obedience from a regenerate heart, isn't that the evidence of genuine religion? Won't his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And then the next thing he says, in the final judgment, gospel holiness without ceremonial ritual will condemn ceremonial ritual without gospel holiness. And the uncircumcised by nature, someone who doesn't have any ceremonial ritual, if he walks in gospel compliance to the law from a regenerate heart, if he fulfills the law, will judge you, will condemn you, the violator of the law, the person who lives a wicked life in this state of sin, with scripture, with the privilege of scripture, and circumcision, the ritual. You have the ritual, but if you live in a wicked life, you're not going to prevail on the day of judgment. The one who's going to prevail over you is the one who has a regenerate heart and a godly life, whether he goes through a, a, a ceremonial ritual or not. And finally, he says, nominal religion, ceremonial rituals please people, heart religion that grows out of a regenerate heart pleases God. For it isn't the outward Jew or the Jew in what's visible or the outward circumcision that's commended by God. No, that's commended by people. But it's the inward Jew in what is hidden and the heart circumcision, a regenerate heart that pleases God. Genuine heart religion and a lifestyle of godliness that grows out of a regenerate heart is pleasing to God. But outward ritual religion is pleasing to people. People like it. It pleases them. But what pleases God is not going through the rituals. What pleases God is religion that comes out of a new heart. So then... That false hope in those days was based on the ritual of circumcision. And now, false religious hope is based on christening or sprinkling or confirmation rites or going to church on Christmas and Easter or, what, or going to church on Sunday morning. It applies to so-called nominal Christians, Christians in name only, who lack a regenerate heart and a life of gospel holiness. 
And the Christian hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So, the final question I have for everyone that's listening to my voice, whether on the phone or here in person, is do you have hope? Do you have hope that when you die, you will spend eternity in heaven? And after the second coming of Christ, you will be judged with the righteous and go to the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Do you have that hope? And what is the foundation of that hope? Do you have a religious hope that's based on the fact that you were christened or that you've been through some kind of ritual or that you attend church on a Sunday morning? Or even that you, you know, read the Bible and have the privilege of having a Bible in your home? Or is your hope based on the fact that Jesus lived for you, Jesus died for you, Jesus transformed you, and he gave you a new heart, and your only hope is in to be forgiven of your sins is Jesus' righteousness and blood, and that Jesus has changed you and given you a new heart, and you are living a life of gospel obedience to him, not perfectly, but sin is no longer ruling in you, and you are living a life of gospel obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Oh, I'm not saying you should stop reading your Bible or stop going to church, but I'm saying that your hope of salvation is not to be based on participation in religious rituals, but on the experience of a new heart and the life of gospel obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God and built on the hope of forgiveness of sin through the precious blood of Jesus and not through some ritual that you're engaged in. Well, may God be pleased to bless his holy word and may be pleased to use it for his glory and for the good of all who hear it. Let's pray.